Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. Our last 20 programs were presentations on the in brief statements of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The six programs which preceded that were on our Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI's third encyclical letter, Caritas in Veritate, Charity and Truth. What I propose to begin today is a series of talks on what has become known as the theology of the body. The 129 or so talks given over the five-year period, 1979 to 1984, by Pope John Paul II in so many of his Wednesday audiences to the faithful gathered in Rome. I will be using as the text that published in 2006 by Professor Michael Waldstein, who had done a terrific labor in translating all together by his own pen, the talks. His edition is an improvement on previous editions, since they had multiple translators who did not evenly translate the text. So we're in a great debt of gratitude to Professor Waldstein, even as we're in a deeper debt to John Paul II, for having given these talks. Chapter 1, Christ Appeals to the Beginning. What is meant by beginning? For some time now, preparations have been underway for the next ordinary assembly of the Synod of Bishops, which will take place in Rome in the fall of next year. The topic of the Synod, De Muneribus Familiae Christiani, the duties or role, gifts, tasks of the Christian family, will focus our attention on this community of human and Christian life, which has been fundamental from the beginning. The Lord Jesus used precisely this phrase, from the beginning, in the dialogue about marriage reported in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. We want to ask ourselves what this word beginning means. In addition, we want to clarify why Christ appealed to the beginning in this particular circumstance. And for this reason, we offer a more precise analysis of the relevant text of sacred scripture approaching Genesis twice during the dialogue with the Pharisees who questioned him about the indissolubility of marriage, Jesus Christ appealed to the beginning. The dialogue took place in the following way. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered them, Have you not read that from the beginning... The Creator created them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and unite with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So it is that they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined, let man not separate. They objected, Why then did Moses order to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answered, Because... Of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. Christ does not accept the discussion on the level on which his interlocutors try to introduce it. In a sense, he does not approve the dimension they try to give the problem. He avoids entangling himself in juridical or casuistic controversies. Instead, he appeals twice to the beginning. By doing so, he clearly refers to the relevant words of Genesis, which his interlocutors also knew by heart. From these words of the most ancient revelation, Christ draws the conclusion and the dialogue ends. Beginning signifies, therefore, what Genesis speaks about. It is thus, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that Christ quotes in summary form from the beginning. The Creator created them, male and female, while the complete original passage reads as follows. God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A little later, the teacher appeals to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and unite with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. Quoting these words almost in extenso as a whole, Christ gives them an even more explicit normative meaning, given that in Genesis they sound like statements of fact, will, will unite, they will be one flesh. The normative meaning is plausible because Christ does not limit himself only to the quote itself, but adds, so it is that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, What God has joined, let man not separate. That phrase, let man not separate, is decisive. In the light of this word of Christ, Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 states the principle of the unity and indissolubility of marriage as the very content of the word of God expressed in the most ancient revelation. One could maintain at this point that the issue is settled, that the words of Jesus Christ confirm the eternal law formulated and instituted by God from the beginning as man's creation. It could also seem that the teacher, by confirming this primordial law of the Creator, does nothing else than establish its proper normative meaning, appealing to the very authority of the first legislator. Yet that significant expression, from the beginning, repeated twice, clearly leads the interlocutors to reflect about the way in which, in the mystery of creation, man was formed precisely as male and female, in order to understand correctly the normative meaning of the words of Genesis. And this is no less valid for interlocutors today than for those then. For this reason, in the present study, 
considering all this, we must put ourselves exactly in the position of Christ's interlocutors today. During the following Wednesday reflections at the general audiences, we will try as Christ's interlocutors today to dwell at greater length on St. Matthew's words, chapter 19, verses 3 through 8, to follow the indication Christ put to them. We will try to penetrate into the beginning to which he appealed in such a significant way. In this way, we will follow from afar the great work on this topic that the participants in the next Synod of Bishops are undertaking right now. Together, with the bishops, many groups of pastors and lay people are participating in it who feel a particular responsibility for the tasks that Christ gives to marriage and to the Christian family, the tasks he has always given and gives also in our epoch in the contemporary world. The cycle of reflections we are beginning today with the intention of continuing it during the following Wednesday meetings, has, among others, the goal of accompanying, so to speak, from afar, the work in preparation for the Synod, not, however, by directly touching its topic, but by turning attention to the deep roots from which this topic springs. That was the first of the 133 talks in Professor Waldstein's edition of the Theology of the Body Talks, Man and Woman, He Created Them. I'd like to go back now over some of the key things we heard from Pope John Paul II, or John Paul the Great, as some have called him. This year, 2010, is the 90th year since John Paul II was born as Karl Wojtyla, and it's the fifth year since he died in 2005. In this first of the Wednesday audiences on the Theology of the Body, we see things which are constant throughout the working, the writing, the teaching. The preaching of Karl Wojtyla become Pope John Paul II. More than five times in this one talk, he refers to reason. He gives reasons, he recognizes reasons, he quotes scripture regarding reason, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. This is the ability of the human intelligence, our natural understanding, the ability to know. As a younger man, Pope John Paul II had studied philosophy, he had sought natural wisdom, allied to supernatural wisdom given by grace in faith, revelation. And he deals with both of these in this first talk and, in point of fact, the rest of the talks as well, subsequent presentations. The Holy Father made reference to his undertaking a precise analysis He's not just shooting off the cuff here. This has been a considered discourse. He meant what he said, and he believes Jesus Christ meant what he said, and that God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, meant what he meant when he 
created the heavens and the earth as an expression of his goodwill towards us, as a self-revelation. A precise analysis looks at all the details and puts them together. And so our Holy Father lays the groundwork in this first presentation of what he will do. He will give us a precise analysis of what it means to be human, to be male, to be female, to be creatures of the Creator. He gives a reason for his study. While the Holy Father only mentions casuistry one time, it's important for us to point out just what it's about. The casuists were those doing moral reasoning, trying to figure out uh, what was permissible and what was not. And the Holy Father is not trying to be a casuist. He's trying to figure out what is the reality of the situation. And in their better days, the casuists were too. But there was a decadent casuistry, sometimes abusing the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, for the backflips they would do trying to make sense of things. In this context, the Holy Father is reminding us that the Lord Jesus was not a casuist. He was just trying to remind us about the original intention of the Creator, God. Not only does our Holy Father speak to us about reason and precise analyzation and casuistry, but also he seeks normative meaning. What does it mean to speak about in the beginning? Part of John Paul II's early formation was in philology, which is the science of words, the origin of words. And we see the philology coming out here. We also see ethics, part of his strong philosophical background. Normative meaning, the controlling meaning. What is the truth of the matter? The truth about the beginnings, the truth about our very being, our being human from the beginning, the beginning of my personal existence, our beginning as a race, male and female. Some people have said this theology of the body, these Wednesday catechesis given by our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, are a time bomb, a theological time bomb waiting to go off. Because the more and more we understand better who we are and whose we are, in whose image we are made, to the extent we act well upon this information, then the reign of God will be among us, not only by the incarnation, not only by the death and resurrection of the Lord or his presence in the sacrament of his body and blood, but even in us, made to his image, given free will with the ability to know and to love powers of our soul. But we love not only with our soul or with our hearts, but we incarnate our love our love is made manifest by an outstretched hand, by a pat on the back, a shoulder to cry on, tears of joy or tears of sorrow, normative meaning. What does it mean? We're hardwired to seek the truth. That's part of what it means to be a human being. Jesus reminds us in the gospel that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Pilate was the one who rejected truth. What is truth? Our Holy Father is not a relativist, and he invites us not to be relativists, but to seek and know the truth, who is Christ, who gives meaning to our lives, who gives meaning to our suffering, who gives us a goal, not only a holy life in the here and now, but eternal bliss on high in his mercy and his justice. Some people will say that things mean what you want them to mean. Well, if somebody tells you, oh, I love you, I love you, and they keep giving you a black eye or a bloody nose, question their meaning. If someone says to you, oh, I respect you, but then they steal your property, question their meaning. Actions speak louder than words, we are often told. And so, too, are actions The actions of every human being reveal the dispositions of the heart. The Holy Father gives us his philological study, or begins his philological study on what the beginning means. When was it? Where was it? How was it? But he also gives us that $5 term so important in the theology, the understanding of what is holy marriage, indissoluble. He only uses it once here, but it is kind of like a bedrock for the reality which is holy marriage. That's something also throughout this first talk. Male and female, he created them. Holy marriage is between one man and one woman for life, open to the gift of life. And there will be much more on this in subsequent talks. Perhaps that's what some people mean when they speak about the explosive force found in this sure and certain teaching of Holy Mother Church. The Pope did not just speak as a jolly old fella over there in Rome. He was very conscious of being the successor to St. Peter, who in his first letter found in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.15, inspired by the Holy Spirit says, Always be ready to give reason for the hope that is within you. Hope, we know, is a theological virtue, a longing for heaven, not just for sunny weather or a better job. It's a longing for heaven and holy marriage, life in that communion of life and love, is a sure ticket to heaven. But it is only so when lived out in accord with God's plan for it from the beginning indissolubility, that it does not dissolve like a bouillon cube in warm water to make soup, or like Alka-Seltzer in your medicinal waters to cure your tummy. Those dissolve the bouillon cube or the Alka-Seltzer, but holy marriage rightly entered into between one man and one woman free to marry without any impediments, exchange their vows, 
give their consent, give themselves to each other, the gift of self. This is the normative meaning of holy marriage, accessible to reason, although confirmed likewise in sacred scripture and divine revelation. Do we really understand these things? We should. Our Holy Father has gone to great lengths to help us understand the truth about marriage, the truth about our human nature, our very being. And if we work with him in studying these so many texts, we will develop our understanding in a better and better way, mirroring more and more the God who made us to know him and to love him, even to serve him in this world that we might be happy with him forever in the next. Pope John Paul II was the Bishop of Rome for 27 years, and not only did he know he was to give reason for the hope that was within him, he also knew that when he said what he said, people would listen, because he did not just speak as a private citizen in these Wednesday audiences, he spoke as the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter, to whom the Lord had addressed those words, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Catholics see in those sacred words uttered by our saving Lord the foundation of his church, Christ Church. We love the popes, but we love them because they lead us to Christ. And when we act in accordance to our nature, male and female, we have been created, then we are pleasing in the sight of God. And in his grace and mercy, our salvation is well assured. Our Holy Father, in these so many talks, cites sacred scripture so frequently. In this first talk, he cites two passages from Genesis and one from St. Matthew. We'll see throughout the subsequent talks how he uses sacred scripture as the soul of his theology. Having been a father at the Second Vatican Council, where sacred scripture was exhorted to be the soul of all reflection on God, theology is the science of God, what we know about God, either naturally or by revelation. Scripture is to be the soul of all theology. And so we can see that Pope John Paul II, like his successor after him, Benedict XVI, they are both men of the sacred text, even if they do not limit themselves to being a religion of the book. For there is only one word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Christ Jesus our Lord, 
who became a man like us in all things but sin, to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ, who was a man among men, with flesh and blood like you and I, who grew hungry, who grew tired, who suffered and died. We worship him, however, because on the third day he rose. And he promises us life on high with himself, even if we anticipate it now by his grace, by holy living in the here and now, as it was in the beginning, before the fall, before our first parents disregarded the holy will of God and act contrary to reason, which is another way to say sinned, and broke their friendship and relationship with God and damaged their own relationship with each other. Our Holy Father will speak to us about that original state, the original justice of man and woman, the original holiness, the gifts God had given in the beginning, and how they were lost, how they were forfeited, and how they might have been improved upon and how they have been improved upon thanks to the goodness of God, his generosity, his grace, his love for us. On a final note, the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, in this first catechesis on the theology of the body, what is meant by beginning in our Lord's appeal to the beginning he makes reference to the Synod of Bishops. A synod is a gathering or an assembly. In the early church, before 1054, when there was the schism with the Greeks, or the 1500s, when the West split up with Henry VIII and Martin Luther and John Calvin, meetings of bishops would happen primarily by region. There have only been 21 ecumenical synods or councils, Vatican II being the 21st of them. But there were many local synods. We've had three in this country, the provincial synods of Baltimore, which encompassed at the time the whole country, United States of America. Certain dioceses will have a synod, a meeting of so many of the priests and the lay faithful, to discuss topics of the day under the direction of the bishop. Pope John Paul II had been present at every synod of bishop since it had been reinstituted by Pope Paul VI until his death. And he had called one which Pope Benedict XVI led, the Synod on the Eucharist. But this Synod of Bishops meeting he refers to in his opening catechesis in the Theology of the Body would prepare the way for the post-synodal apostolic exhortation on the family, Familiaris Consortio. Let us always seek to be part of that family of God 
which we are by grace and baptism. And let us do all that we can to bring others into that same divine family, children of our Heavenly Father, who has loved us so much that he sent his only Son to save us, born of a woman, born under the law to save us from ourselves, to give us the grace we need to keep the law, to fulfill the prophets. I speak of Jesus Christ, our Savior and God. May he be praised now and forever, even as he has from the beginning. Until next time, God bless you.